0: Hello, and welcome to the Anima Cafe podcast. A chance to hear the recording of our latest cafe, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. My name is Shaquille Chaudhry, and I'm co founder of Anima Leadership and delighted that you're all here today. I'd like to start by acknowledging that our organization, Animal Leadership, is based here in Toronto, which is the traditional territories of many uh, indigenous uh, groups and nations. We'd like to recognize the the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, and more recently, the Métis and Inuit peoples. And specifically, we'd like to recognize the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. We honor their people, their ancestors, and their spirits as stewards of this land. And in the spirit of amplifying Indigenous voices, I am just absolutely delighted today that um, our guest is Clayton Thomas Mueller. And so, uh, Clayton is many things, many, many things. And uh, this beautiful book is what we'll be focusing on today uh, Life in the City of Dirty Water, a memoir of healing. And if you've not gotten this, I really hope that uh, after today's conversation, you will get this because it's a really powerful book. Clayton, you've done so many different things. Uh, I just want to welcome you to the show. Uh, welcome you to our cafe. I always call the cafe a show. I don't know why, but it's, it's starting to feel like it's a little bit of a, a thing when we're having people like you on here. I feel like there's a little bit of a show happening. So I just want to welcome you. And uh, for people who don't know who you are, you've done so many things in your life. Uh, working backwards. You're an author, a filmmaker, an artist, uh, and uh, soon to be a performer. You're a speaker, and your work has been deeply rooted in environmental justice, uh, where you've really been linking issues around uh, indigeneity, indigenous sovereignty, indigenous rights with ecological and climate justice. And so I want to welcome you to the show. There's so much to talk about, but Welcome
1: hey thanks so much for having me it's really special to be
0: here yeah and of course I got to start off by by congratulating you because uh folks if you don't know Clayton is no longer a on the long list for Canada Reads Clayton's book is a finalist in Canada Reads so big shout out to you we're really excited about the fact that uh that, that that you've made that list how are you feeling
1: yeah, well, it you know, kind of feel good, feels like I've, I've had a muzzle on my mouth for about a month now. And, you know, I found out about it, like, you know, a while back, uh, you know, I'm actually speaking to you all right now from from Peru, uh, from deep in the Amazon, i up and down here for a month at an indigenous healing center, and just finished a three week fast on Friday. And I'm in I'm in the city of Iquitos, uh, the largest city on planet Earth. Um, inaccessible by roads, and uh, just just here in a hotel doing media for this Canada Reads announcement, and of course animea Cafe today, and then I'll be heading back home to to my sons Felix and Jackson, and I'm really excited. But yeah, you know, I've been thinking about it and praying on it for the last month now. You know, as I've been exploring and and, and dealing with, you know all the personal issues that writing this memoir brought up, you know, some of the demons I had to face and whatnot. I've been dealing with that this last month here um, in a good way uh, with the Shipibo peoples. And yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's a mixed bag. You know, I've, when, when I started writing my memoir about seven years ago, you know, I've always been a fan of Canada Reads. And, you know, that was certainly something in my mind that I prayed about that my book be a part of this mm-hmm. uh, event. Mm-hmm. And uh, seven years later, here we are. So, you know, I didn't pray to win. You know, that's like, that would be like praying to win dingo or uh, the lottery. But I just prayed that I could be a part of it. You know, that the story could be a part of it. And, you know, maybe, maybe touch a few more people living in these lands that they call Canada and, you know, share a story of shared collective experience of indigenous peoples growing up in one of Canada's inner cities. So
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> it's overwhelming. Mm, mm. So many places to go. And uh, I think where I want to start is is by, you know, just acknowledging that, you know, as I read this book, there's so many dimensions of your life that you've shared shared here and from your early life uh, survivor of sexual um, assault uh, from uh, experiences of deep and traumatic and just like the ugliest forms of racism, uh, your journey into self-destruction into, um, into into criminality in jail, being an athlete, being a, a car thief being so many things that you've just experienced so much uh, and and then moving into activism and indigenous uh, youth activism that you were that started you off that moved you really from a very local into a global context and Uh, You know, your story is about warriorship. Your story is, is is about healing. It's about becoming a dad. It's, it's so many different things. So there's so many dimensions here. What I want to ask is what motivated you to want to write it? What motivated you to, to, to want to share, share your journey?
1: You know, in, in, in our Cree culture and kind of our Cree world and Cosmo vision, you know, our um, our language is not rote, you know a, a lot of y'all might have seen a lot of indigenous folks you know getting like syllabic words tattooed on them and stuff like that but you know those those syllabics were created by a Jesuit priest um you know our, our our language is part of the what linguists call that whole polyamorphic thing or oral language you know our history is oral you know, all of our traditional ecological knowledge and, you know, our knowledge of the cosmos and our knowledge of our bodies right into the the genome, you know, it it all lives within the words of our language and is passed on through practice of ceremony and song and storytelling. And so, you know, my whole life, you know, through the encouragement of people like my mother, you know, I've always been a storyteller in terms of like how to writing a book Come about, you know. I I was living in the capital city um, for a number of years with my son's mother, Corinne, and both of my sons, uh, our sons, Felix and Jackson, were born in Ottawa. And you know, when they when they got into um, the early stages of 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 kindergarten, grade one, and you know, and, and preschool, I, I started to find myself having a very difficult time doing the day to day tasks that you know, you know, I think fathers probably take for granted, you know, like playtime you know, time to brush the teeth and, you know, time to read the stories and all of those things. And, um, you know, I, I found myself kind of like blinking out and going into autopilot, like consistently. And I was having that problem in other parts of my life as well, including in my marriage to their mother, where I would always be on auto, autopilot. I, I talked to my therapist about it and and and, and asked him, know, I just, I was like, what's going on here? You know, I, you know I'm you getting in kind of all, all kinds of shit from my partner. And, She's saying I'm never present, and you know. And he said to me, he said, well, you know, it's actually really normal for people who are are, are trying to cope uh, and heal from post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, in your case, you know, Indian residential, you know, intergenerational residential schools, you know, syndrome, which is a form of PTSD. And and he said, you know, and for people that that go through that, you know, they they you know, aside from tendencies around you know substance dependency and. You know other destructive behavioral patterns, disassociative behavior, you know, blinking out and going into autopilot. This is all a nervous system response to the consistent clicking on and off of your reptilian brain's fight or flight, you know, reflex. And so, you know, quite often when we look into the eyes of our children, you know, they're mirrors, and they they reflect back to you, you know, both the positive and the negative memories you have from when you were that age. And so he said, you know, so it's normal, you know, but there are coping mechanisms that you can develop and ways to not blink out, you know, to practice mindfulness and to live in the moment and not be anxious about the future or depressed and have regret about the past. And I was like, well, well, what is that? And, you know, he said, well, you know, keep going to ceremonies and, you know, go to Sundance, go to sweat lodge, you know, smoke your pipe, come to therapy. He's like, you know, maybe start exercising and, you know, lose some weight, you know, think about your, your physical health. And, uh, and he said, and do art, you know, start journaling, start writing, do other artistic things. And so I, I I wrote a book, um, but it was like way too fucked up to publish. And it would have like super traumatized, like a bunch of people in my life that I'm still on the journey with, you know, people like my mother and stuff, you know, and um, that it you know, had that shared collective experience of those moments that, that, that were very damaging spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a campaigner, I work for the global climate organization, 350.org. And, you know, a lot of the work, I I mean, some of y'all might have seen, you know, the big protests at the White House over the Keystone XL, or in Ottawa, you know, over the Energy East pipeline, or, you know, in Victoria over the Northern Gateway Pipeline or in Alberta right in the tar sands, you know, or some of the more sacred events like the Sacred Healing Walk. You know, the work I do is in supporting those types of mass mobilizations or acts of civil disobedience. And I'm part of a team, you know, at 350 that's sole purpose is to stop the expansion of the Alberta tar sands and to transition Canada, you know, into a fossil-free economic paradigm. Um, you know, rooted in human rights, indigenous rights. And, and, you know, I got this homie of mine, uh, Spencer Mann and his partner, Anna Lee Popham. And I, I just told him, I was, you know, I was thinking about the book process. And I was like, thinking about like, how our language is not wrote and the sacred like form and art form of oration and storytelling. And, I said to him, because he's always with, you know, over the years, he's always been with me, you know, recording and filming. You know, we make movement films, like for social media, about protests and about resistance and about land and water and climate defenders. And um, and I said, yo, man, when we're not filming, you know, I'll raise some extra money. And, you know, why don't you record me telling stories about being native and growing up in one of Canada's inner cities, you know? And, and uh, he's like, oh, that sounds amazing. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so for 16 months you know we recorded me telling stories you know everywhere from my hunting trip with my brothers in thunder Child, saskatchewan to you know to the this this tour we did up to the tar sands with these south pacific leader indigenous leaders to you know i even flew spencer into winnipeg a couple of times and you know and we did we did you know, recording in Winnipeg and in the adjacent, you know, res- reserves near Winnipeg, like Brokenhead First Nation, where I used to sundance when I was a kid. And, and when we finished that process, you know, we took the audio from 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 the recording and we pumped it through Google Voice to text in the Google in the Google toolbox, and that spit out a manuscript. And mm-hmm. um, we then took that manuscript and we edited it, you know, because sometimes the the voice to text doesn't get the right words or whatever, and uh we edited it, and that became the the book that you know penguin published the memoir Life in the City of Dirty Water, you know a memoir of healing
0: and uh yeah, here we are <laughs> wow, so wow, thank you google yeah. google translates and and get that down yeah. that's great I getting paid by Google, I just got to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know. I'm just joking. Um, listen, I, I want to ask you because uh, you talked about Winnipeg and um, the book is entitled Life in the City of Dirty Water. And I think uh, there's a really beautiful story, but there's also real push factors and pull factors related to Winnipeg um, in your life. Can you talk about a the meaning of the, uh, of the title and why you chose it, but also what's been the push and pull? Because that's a really powerful part of your story.
1: Well, you're going to have to elaborate on what's the push and pull a little more. I don't understand the question quite so much. But what I will say, kind of funny, funny reflection on the title. I know a lot of people all over the planet because of the nature of my work. And I travel a lot and have a lot of, you know, movement family, like on all continents. And and, uh, it was funny, you know. In the early stages of, of, of the book and, and the film, I could always tell when my friends didn't read the descriptions or didn't actually read the article, because they'd be like, oh, you know, activist Clayton Thomas Mueller is writing a book about water pollution. And, <laughs> you know, and, and... <laughs> when it's like, no, no, it's it's you know, Winnipeg in, in Cree, it it means the literal meaning is is murky water or muddy water. You know, and Winnipeg is famous, uh, you know, even before Canada existed, because it was a historical gathering place of many tribes, uh, many, many indigenous nations, you know, that would meet where the Assiniboine River and the Red River, you know, fork together, you know, and today in the city in contemporary Winnipeg, it's called the Forks, it's kind of a tourist destination, but it's also the site of of, of a lot of old villages and, and, and the, you know, a lot of a lot of summer celebrations used to happen there and ceremonies and stuff like that and you know both the assiniboine and the winnipeg they they run through they have clay river bottoms so the, the water is you know you can't see and it's very muddy and um you know so winnipeg you know literal literal translation is like muddy water mercury murky water and so yeah that's why i called it uh, life in the city of dirty water you know it's like literal it's not not some (laughs) big thing about like you know how water's sacred and we're trying to protect it from you know evil evil oil companies or big agro or anything like that (laughs) although that is in the book but
0: yeah that's yeah and I'm going to get to that in a minute but I want to but the reason the the story of Winnipeg really caught me is that there was a chunk of your life where you didn't really want to be there but then you found your way back and I think that was the push and pull that I was talking about. Can you talk about that? It's interesting. Like you know, for the majority of
1: the life um, that I lived in the city of Winnipeg, you know, I always lived within like eight blocks of the hospital that I was born in, Misericordia, in the West End of Winnipeg. It's right on the shore of the Assiniboine River, in between Maryland and Sherbrooke. You know, it's it's also kind of a like like there's a thing in Winnipeg called the Wolseley Bubble, and so you've got West End, and a part of the West End is the Wolseley, but Wolseley is this like radical kind of hippie Wiccan. Kind of interesting, you know, hipster kind of folk, folky neighborhood, you know, where you got 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 a lot of gardens and you know, like just these unique houses that you can't see anywhere else in North America, and, and 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 you know, Winnipeg is home to the largest urban elm forest on planet Earth, right? So when you drive through the West End and you drive through the Wolseley there's these beautiful arches of these incredibly huge elm trees and in the summertime it's like these, these green magical tunnels you know and, and it's just the most beautiful beautiful neighborhood and, 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 and they have back lanes these big back lanes you know in, in all the streets and then when you get on the, the other side of Maryland you know where I live right now you know where I live most of my life in the West End, like hardcore West End, you know, it, it's beautiful, beautiful heritage apartments. You know, hundreds, to, hundred year old plus apartments. You know, hardwood floors, and all those apartments were made from the scraps that were left over from the building of the legislature building in Manitoba, which is right there in the West End as well. Yeah, it's, it's it's just it's just a really beautiful place, and I find my I found myself like I've lived all over. I mean, my my son's mother and I eloped when we were very young. To we got married in Oakland, California. I got a job in California after burning out, um, doing gang intervention work in my early years as a community organizer. And you know, I got this job opportunity in Oakland, and you know, we had we had actually been separated for a year. We were engaged for like five years, and I don't know, shit just got too heavy between you know her Mennonite family and my like Cree family. <laughs> or maybe that was just our projection. But yeah, the wedding never did take. Place. She still got a wedding dress that she never wore because we both kind of freaked out about the idea of our families coming together at a, at a wedding and yeah we just we took off to oakland and got married out of there but you know when we came back to canada you know we ended up and we didn't want to come back to winnipeg winters so we went to vancouver and vancouver was just too much you know the, there's no there's no real middle class or working class like blue collar in vancouver there is but like visibly though it's like you're either rich like uber rich or you're not and in the downtown east side wastelands you know all the sacrifice area open drug market area there's a disproportionate amount of our native people that you know have ended up in those neighborhoods and they're suffering you know so i really didn't like vancouver and i couldn't deal with the rain you know i get seasonal depression i'm sure a lot of a lot of the people on the call do um so we we moved to ottawa lived there for a while and that's where both our kids were born And but after you know our kids got to a certain age we didn't have no family in ottawa so you know it's really hard to raise children without family support and without a really strong community Eh, kind of can drive you mad and so we ended up back in winnipeg again you know and, and and it was for the better you know our sons got to know their their mennonite great-grandparents before they died and you know they've been spending so much time you know, with my mother and, and, and my grandmother, you know, their, their great grandmother, um, who I live with, they're my roommates. Might as well, y'all might as well know, like my, my son's mother and I separated, but we're still very much, you know, very, very close and co-parenting the children. And I'm only a couple blocks from, you know, where, where Corinne and the boys live and uh, we're working together. But yeah, living in Winnipeg, the boys get to be, you know, in, in pre-immersion at my apartment, um, with their great grandmother and my mom, because you know they just sit up all damn day and night drinking black tea and talking in pretty, right? So yeah, it,
0: it's 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 interesting, you know how it always pulls me back. <laughs> you, you'd mentioned you'd mentioned in the book that, but one of the things that also really kept you away is you described that a lot of your demons were in 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 uh, in Winnipeg, and that that was one of the things that also you know made you not want to go back.
1: Yeah, you know. When I was young and I, and I ran away from Winnipeg, you know i I thought I was running away from you know toxic relationships and 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 whatnot. but you know at the end of the day, the things I was running away from were living inside of my spirit, my heart and my mind, and you know' it was trauma and, uh, and and there were, there was no escape from those things. And so you know, whether I was in California or Vancouver or in the capital city, you know, still still carried, you know a lot of, a lot of trauma you know all my life I've, I've had issues with you know relapsing and you know getting into self-medicating with drugs or alcohol and you know and I've had moments of sobriety too but uh, but yeah you know so this this last time moving back to Winnipeg you know after 12 years in the capital and working on this book and finishing this book in Winnipeg I mean it almost killed me you know like uh, writing about you know all of the difficult themes that life in the city of dirty water explores. You know, and 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 really having a hard, you know, look and really thinking about, you know, the people that in my life that brought great damage to my family. You know, and even people in my family who did it to our family. You know, and 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 reflecting on that while also looking at the destructive things that I've done in my life, you know, people I've hurt, you know, people I've abandoned, and really kind of taking a good hard look at like, you know, the question, what is it going to take to actually heal, you know, as an Indigenous person, as a father, as a son, you know, and all these roles that we play in our lives, what is it actually going to take? What kind of hard work does it take? What kind of suffering does it take to find forgiveness, not just for all these externalized things, these people and these memories, but, you know, deep inside, you know, how do you let go of the regret and the shame and, you know, and the anger and hatred, you know, and the fear that comes with the legacy of Canada's violent colonial history. And that's, that's a process that I've been going through since I talked to my therapist in Ottawa and he told me to write this book. And it, and it was brutal because the whole time, you know, my day job don't stop. Got to go fight evil people all day long you know, and support communities who are are also in crisis. You know, when you're a Native campaigner and you're working to support Native communities, you know, our people are, are, you know, you're doing, you're not just like organizing protests or organizing, you know, teaching education sessions about the science of climate change or about our indigenous collective rights or about constitutional law or any, you know, you're also doing crisis intervention. You know, you're you're doing uh, peer-to-peer counseling. You know, you're 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 involved in spiritual battles. You know, you're going to ceremonies in these communities and fighting against you know the the spiritual dimensions of of this fight for decolonization, truth and reconciliation, and reparations. And 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 all the while, you know, back home, you're you're when you're trying to raise a family, you're still dealing with you know racism at all levels whether it's systemic interpersonal or in, you know internalized and i think that that's where that's where i really really hope you know one of my great hopes for this memoir and and for the people who read it is that they 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 get a little better understanding of you know that that hopefully unravels some of the horrific agenda of the government of Canada and the private sector corporations that they're working in collusion with, and these, these, these ridiculous ideas that they put out there, like about how natives are freeloaders and we're all you know drunks, and you know, and we get free education, free housing, we don't pay taxes, like all, all that bullshit. I hope that, that gets thrown out the window for some people who read this memoir. Because I want to take a moment just to hit pause and 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 to really just send my love you know, and in, 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 in prayers for all the families in Williams Lake today. They, they found another 97 children at this residential school in BC. You know, add that to the list, it's like almost 8,000 children that they've found now in these unmarked graves. And I just found out that, uh, you know, a, a friend of, of, of some of the people that I support up in, in Alberta, they've been looking for a mother, you know, she's been missing and, you know, they found her today and they found out that she's gone, you know, and, 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 they're, and so I, I sent prayers out to Fort Chippewan, you know, for another one of our, our women that has gone, you know, missing and has made her journey, you know, under, under Native people have a shared collective experience and colonization is not over nor is the violence that it brings into our communities and our lands. Until this stuff becomes a white person problem in Canada, we'll continue to see these things. But, you know, I'll tell you something, these young people in the movement today are not going to tolerate this. And we will see more escalation that throws wrenches into the system of Canada's economic paradigm.
0: Thank you for the the reminder of the Williams Lake and for, for tip one. And you know what it connects to for me is uh, you wrote something that really resonated for me in your book where you said really powerfully that education is not about facts; it's actually about seeing patterns. And one of the one of the very long standing patterns is um, extractive industries, oil, gas, mining, that that they are always not just set up beside indigenous communities, but there's a particular way in which they they divide Indigenous communities. And, and um, you described that as, as that as Indigenous communities being held hostage. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that with maybe an example, uh, Wet'suwet'en or any other place right now that's most alive for you in your mind. So people who are listening really get a sense of the divisions because often in media, we see these divisions like, well, some Indigenous people are saying, Yes, the pipeline, some are saying no. So really it's a divided issue. And so it kind of leaves it in that kind of way, but you're, you're, you're describing that as a pattern of divide and conquer. Can you expand please? Well,
1: you know, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of really good literature out there that, that, that folks should read, you know, do your due diligence and, you know, people should learn about the complexities of, of land claims process in this country and, and about the, the difference between, you know, Indigenous peoples who have treaty with the crown, you know, like, for example, Pagatawag and First Nation is part of Treaty 6. And, you know, there are not just the numbered treaties, one through 11, there's also other treaties, older ones, like the Hona Dushoni, you know, and the Two Row Wampum Treaty that depicts two canoes sharing the river, but neither path interrupting Each other, they're just sharing the river, traveling together, you know, total equity and peace. And uh, there's treaties in Mi'kmaq territory in Atlantic Canada. And then there are places where there are no treaties, like in British Columbia. From a Western law perspective, these are places where Canada doesn't have a pot to piss in when they, or neither does BC, when they try to assert title over the title held by those Indigenous nations in those regions. Um, And I would, you know, push even further and say that. You know, Canada has no 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 jurisdiction, nor does its sub-governments, you know, over the treaty territories either, because there's this term in English called gunboat diplomacy. You know, and gun du- gunboat diplomacy is not a new thing. I mean, they've been using, you know, unfair tactics, whether it's, you know, starvation, you know, the holding of rations, you know, all kinds of different things, you know, the killing, the genocide of the Buffalo Nation, you know, to starve people in the prairies and force them into signing agreements you know under duress you know nations in dc you know being forced to make agreements you know in their communities their big houses and their 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 ancestors totem poles were fired on by cannon you know by some of these so-called explorers they're real really pirates you know genocidal pirates but yeah you know you get the picture and the fact of the matter is is that indigenous peoples right now continue to be under duress, you know, our people continue, you know, we have socioeconomic crisis, like in almost every one of our First Nations, what Canadians don't understand, you know, and, and, and not just the ones that have been here for multiple generations, but also new immigrants and undocumented people as well you know, they're all fed this propaganda that Native people are somehow freeloaders, when the reality of it is, is the narrative is completely backwards. And the truth is completely backwards, because Indigenous peoples, along with our relatives, you know, who were exploited for free labor, whether it's Chinese or Black slaves, you know, the Chinese built the railway, and yes, there were Black slaves in Canada, you know, a lot of people don't You know, they don't, they don't understand that. There's been complete erasure about that. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, there are so many layers upon layers. And when you get into critical race theory in a Canadian context, and the history of colonialism and the ongoing neo-colonialism, it can be very overwhelming to, to kind of process, especially if you're some rich-ass white person with like a three-door garage and like 2,800 square feet, you know, <laughs> and you've never even read it in a book about it, you know, like it can be like, what the, no way, that's not even, that can't be true. But corporations and, and especially Western prop Provinces, you know, that are part of the Natural Resources Transfer Act. You know, they they understand. You know, and you got these companies, whether it's a uranium company like uh, what is it, Cameco or whatever. In Manitoba, it's Manitoba Hydro, a Crown Corporation. You know, they show up in our communities. They sponsor our daycares. They donate money to uh, the corporate. You know, run Inspire. You know, the, everybody loves the National Aboriginal Achievement Awards, but like it's a front for big mining and big oil companies. And they're the biggest provider of Indian college and university bursaries in the country, which is a devolution of the federal government's fiduciary obligation to provide funds For each individual First Nation to attend post-secondary school to get an education, the devolution of of, of the Crown responsibility and the trust relationship between First Nations and the Crown. And, And it's all being fueled by Canada's economic paradigm, which is fundamentally, you know, based, like, for it to be successful, Canada must dispossess Indigenous peoples from their land, then Canada must suppress our collective rights to our land, water, and climate, our air. Canada must disenfranchise us and turn us into tax-paying assimilated Canadians for Canada to be able to extract raw resources and not even refine them here. Like We all saw what happened in BC when Canada exported all the refinement of logging and timber to other countries, and now Canada just exports raw logs, you know, like, not that I support logging, but back when they used to mill all the lumber here that, you know, my, my dad was a part of that industry, you know, and when it all fell apart, he went and worked at the tar sands, (laughs) you know, so Canada's economic system is fundamentally for it to keep going and for Canada to stay as wealthy and all the stuff that it is, you know, the conquer and divide tactics that are utilized in our communities are are not new. They're much more well-funded. And, you know, you can go to a community like Fort Chippewan and see the Suncor children's daycare. You know, you can, you know, Suncor donated some, 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 an old gas station plot in, I think, East Vancouver to a youth native youth group down there so they could open up a youth center you know like just all this red washing stuff that happens you know you see it go on and on and you know and 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 our, and our first nations leaders i don't envy them I, I pity them you know i feel sorry for them it's the shittiest job on earth you know you get all these young natives that are like oh, i want to be chief yeah and i'm like why It's the most horrible job on earth and you like everything is your fault, even when it's not. And, you know, and I've seen some great leaders, you know, from Matthew Kuhn come to Ovid McCready, Phil Fontaine, uh, you know, and now, you know, Chief Tony Alexis, you know, who's heading up the latest consortium to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you know, like I've seen all these leaders, you know, push an ideology which I fundamentally agree with, which is that, you know, economic self-determination is the pathway to, you know, to sovereignty, to community self-determination. That said, we have the technology right now to not do that practice without, you know, and have to give up our water, have to give up our ability to hunt fish and trap to collect and harvest sacred medicines and plants from our territories and to meet our original instructions to defend not just our livelihood of our people, but the livelihood of all of those beings that are our relatives within the biosphere of the sacred place where Creator put us. You know, we don't have to give these things up. There is an agenda by the most well-funded corporate entities on the planet. You know, the new religion of the day is no longer Christianity, it's capitalism, okay? And we need, like we did back in the day, a separation of church and state. We need a separation of extractive industries and state in Canada and across Mother Earth because they're pushing a much more aggressive and predatorial form of capitalism. You know, this neoliberal model is terrifying. And it's not just indigenous peoples or black and brown people who are being disproportionately harmed by it. Now it's like, some poor ass white people too, you know, and, and (laughs) you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what comes down the pipeline pun intended, in the future here in regards to the expansion of the world's largest social movement that we've been organizing in the history of humankind, to take power away from these psychopaths, who are going to kill us you know, they're going to kill the planet. We've got seven years from scientific, global scientific like consensus. We've got seven years left to turn the tap off on fossil fuels or we're all screwed.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's sobering. When you, when I hear you talk and you describe what you've described from the historical context of manipulation, of a genocide, of violence, so the current day you know, practices of colonization, um, divide and conquer, all of these things, uh, you know, the, the Suncor logo put over atop a, a youth center, like all these kinds of things are going on. I mean, I, I just even hear that and it enrages me. And you talk about your relationship to anger throughout this, throughout this, th- throughout this book. And, you know, what's, what's profound is, is that you've been in this dance around anger, but your book ends with talking about healing and love. And you, you write powerfully about how anger both nourishes your work, but also, or nourishes any of our work. And when we're involved in justice, it's, it's if, if we're not angry, we're not paying attention. Like there's just something, if you're involved in justice work, it's gonna piss you off. Um, you're gonna be enraged at the systems because when you can see the systems, it's, it's impossible to not see them and not experience them and not link our experiences there. Um, and yet at the same time, you really acknowledge how much that that anger can also, it's useful, but can also be, can, can erode you, can consume you, can terrify you. and your book, talks a lot about healing and you move and you're, you're, you have a very particular orientation to what warriorship means. And, and what that journey has been for you. And I think the part I was, I was so moved by was when you talked about the winter spirit and you talked about this idea of what to go, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly, but I think that I would love if you could say a little bit more about that because this inner outer, the healing work, the outer work, the winter spirit within and how much we've got to wrestle with that such an important, important concept.
1: Yeah, the, you know there there's a there's a very common thread you know in in, in Creek communities where you're 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 not supposed to uh... so yeah the winter spirit there's a common thread that when the snow is is going and it's like flying sideways that you really shouldn't go out into the forest like when it's because that's when the winter spirit comes out the weetagu and you know. There's stories in my own family, you know, about my grandfather when he fought a weed to go. He was, he was canoeing past some islands that we were told never to go to after a hunt. And uh, he's by himself. And his canoe started getting pulled towards this island, like by some kind of current, a force in the water. And as they got closer to the island, he could see this, in this being standing there. It was like a human and uh as he got closer he could see that 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 being had eaten all the tips of the fingers off of his fingers he didn't have fingers anymore and he could see that his lips were gone he had eaten his own lips because you know what they say is that only the strongest can fast in the winter otherwise you're you you can get taken by the winter spirit and the winter spirit is a cannibal and so those that get possessed by the winter spirit become cannibals and they have an insatiable hunger that they can never satisfy and so you know writing this memoir I I thought about that story you know my grandfather he, he, he he tried to shoot it but his gun jammed and so he had to fight that winter spirit with his gun like the butt of his gun and he killed it and uh He didn't remember how he got back home to the cabin, but he woke up like two weeks later and his hair got turned white and he couldn't hunt for the rest of the summer. He was in bed for that whole summer. He had become very ill um, after that, that experience. And so, you know, for me, I have another grandfather, my great grandfather, you know, who he used to go and fast under the ice in the wintertime you know, like a bear, you'd hibernate under there and, uh, and be okay. And so, and what they, what some people say is that if you can do that, and your mind is strong enough to do that, there's great rewards that come with that. Maybe you need to get a powerful medicine to cure somebody who's sick or, and so, you know, I find that 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 spirit of consumption, you know, that cannibalism, you know, that 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 is very much represented in the predatory economic system that the entire planet is being consumed by right now. And the people, the decision makers that are Funding, you know, this never-ending, you know, bro- growth, you know, um, smashing through the glass ceiling of ecology, you know, and 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 driving us towards these positive feedback loops that we have no power to stop once they begin. Things like the permafrost and Siberia melting, things like the the cold, you know, the 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 uh, frozen methane at the bottom of the ocean to start gasifying and releasing, you know, fueling climate change even further. Things like what we're what witnessing in real time in Canada's vast boreal forest with the fires, the wildfires, entire cities burning down, Slave Lake, Fort McMurray, you know, and now in British Columbia, just this summer, you know, you've got villages and First Nations burning down um, because of these wildfires that they can't stop. And that's the world over you know, and it's, and and yet people, because of the fact that our connection to the sacredness of Mother Earth has been severed by industrialization and hyper individualistic capitalism, you know, they're trying to fill this emptiness inside their chest with consumerism, when really the connection to community and nature and that sacred circle of life is the only thing that will fill that insatiable hunger. And so... In the book, you know, you'll see that that I often reference, you know, the winter spirit because it, you know, it's something that's omnipresent and it's always there, and it's not necessarily an evil thing either. You know, like I, I don't really believe in in good and evil and this and that. You know, there's balance. You know, and 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 right now things are vastly outbalanced right now in in our ecology. Uh, you know, w- within our human you know, community between gender, you know, hypertoxic masculinity and patriarchy um, are, are destroying all of the other sacred roles in the gender spectrum that make up our peoples and our communities and, you know, and there needs to be a balance that's struck or we will lose our ability to live on mother earth, you know, because we're fundamentally changing the chemistry of the planet right now with the way that things are currently going. And so, you know, I know from myself, you know, working from that, you know, one of the reasons I've had success in my life, and, you know, in, 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 you know, in campaign work and stopping things like the Keystone XL pipeline, you know, with the thousands of people, you know, I got to be a part of that. And stopping the Energy East pipeline, you know, I got to be a part of that and stopping Total... You know, in their big tar sands mining ambitions and Shell and Exxon and, you know, all of these expansion projects in the tar sands, you know, supporting the grassroots people and communities there to stop that in defense of water, to stop the cancers in the communities, you know, from spreading even more. To stop the freaking wars that tar sands oil has been fueling in the Persian Gulf, you know, Canada may not have gone to Iraq, but our oil certainly has, you know, through the strategic naval petroleum refinery out of Tacoma, Washington, which, you know, it, it, it refines tar sands oil, you know, so, so that, that, that winter spirit, you know, it, 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 it's got a lot of legs right now, and people, you know, the only way that they can protect themselves from it or heal from that sickness of greed and consumption is by connecting to the sacred place where Creator puts you and your family and standing up and like doing something to protect that area, to keep it sacred and clean, um, you know, for future generations to benefit from. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we really don't inherit anything, you know, we're we're borrowing it, you know, from our kids, we're taking care of it for them so that they can go pick berries and fish and like, you know, take us take a freaking nap in a
0: meadow, (laughs) you know, like all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, you know, the idea of the winter spirit as being part of, you know, what we're challenging in the collective in our economic system, um is the macro perspective. and and your book, and also part of what you've been talking about today is struggling with the winter spirit within. and and that's uh, that is is also deeply inspiring because I feel like one of the things you've talked a lot about and are very transparent about, you know, in, in this interview as well as in your book, is that it's not a straight line, that there's a continual struggle of healing that has to happen, and that, It's not about perfection, but you're going to fall and you're going to you're going to do it right. You're going to fall and do some more healing. And then there's a there's a process and a cycle. And um, I deeply appreciated that. And and you're in Peru right now in Quito's. And you said that, you know, you're there also for for personal healing. And and I just I'd, I'd love for you to just sort of talk about, you know, just just this process on that very individual level of what's helped you keep going on that path towards healing on that path towards wrestling with the this winter spirit within that I think all of us are uh, need to be a part of to recognize because I I don't think you can talk about the healing you talk about in your book I don't think you can talk about the compassion and generosity in your book without that and you said some very profound things that that, you know, loving and being grateful for people who have even done you wrong, you know, in the ways that you, uh, to, to, to quote you. So just please talk about that a little bit. Cause I think that that's very, very instructive for all of us to be looking internally.
1: You know, I know, I know for myself, you know, it's funny, you know, i always get introduced as like an environmentalist you know and and uh i get introduced as a lot of things actually you know and and i always kind of like chuckle to myself but it's also it can be frustrating too at times like um when when you live a public life and and and, you know people see you on the internet or on tv or in a newspaper or whatever and 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 they'll project what they think you are who they think you are Mm -hmm. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, I'm I'm just a Cree guy that grew up in the West End of Winnipeg. And, uh, And I have all the tendencies of every other Cree guy that like grew up in the West End of Winnipeg with like super like scrappy like male figures in my life that, you know, they didn't work shit out. They scrapped it out. You know, I don't know how many times I watched my dad beat up men just like out in the street and the police never came. You know, he never got arrested or charged with assault. And I mean, same thing with how many times he beat my mom up, you know. her in the hospital police never came you know and um you know and so I think I think I think about these things and 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 and, you know and so I've always been very very open and honest with people that I meet to be careful and not project on me what they think I am because I've you know I did that growing up to a lot of you know unfairly to a lot of like native men in my life like teachers good ones you know very strict very some were total assholes and you know but they gave me what i needed at that moment to keep going and but you know Mm -hmm. i put them on a pedestal and then when they fucked up um you know in their life and their personal life or whatever it was like crushing because like oh no this 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 person that i I put on a pedestal turns out they're an asshole (laughs) but that's just humanity right and so, you know, and it's easy to do that kind of thing when you're naive and young, you know? And I think only through experience you learn not to do that, right? And so um, I know for myself, you know, coming down here to Peru on this trip, you know, this is a this is, uh, part of a seven-year plan. Um, you know, I, I mentioned how, 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 how destructive this process of writing this memoir was and, how, and the very, very high price that my family and my inner circle of friends paid for me to go through this process. You know, I want to acknowledge Judy Rebick on the call right now. Mm. You know, and you know, Judy's one of my dearest friends, and you know, and, and and teachers, and you know, and just somebody that I really love a lot. And you know, and she was one of the people there. You know, that helped me through, you know, really bad fits of alcoholism and 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 just like mourning. You know, I've been mourning for like like a decade. You know because my mind finally got to a place where it expanded enough and developed enough at at, you know in my 30s and 40s where i could see the full picture of of just how messed up like colonization is and you know and how much residential schools screwed up our family and 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 you know and i pushed all of that down into my belly and and you know, into a ball, you know, you gotta think about it like a neutron star, the most dense object in the universe. And like, that was my hatred and my anger and my fear. And I used that over the last 20 years of campaigning to go at these sons of bitches who are like destroying our planet. And I was working from a place of hatred and, and, and anger. And, you know, over time, it began to cannibalize me from within and you know saying that i was turning into an oil executive (laughs) or a shareholder of one of these companies but that energy of 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 cannibal of like a predator cannibalistic that winter spirit it was eating me from the inside out that's right and you know writing this memoir and like you know and, and and you know asking for help you know and you know, and it was a messy process, you know, I don't talk to a lot of my bestest friends in, in the world, you know, we're, we don't talk right now, because I, I I went through some darkness to put this book out in the world, and my family paid a price, mm-hmm. and I paid a price, but the one thing that, that, that there was the guiding light through the darkness was my sons, mm-hmm. he chick my squat you, black bear man, and dancing buffalo boy, you know, and I, and I was like, this, this mantra, this ends with me. Mm. You know, and I've been with my mom for the last two and a half years. And, you know, we often sit together late at night and smoke a joint and Talk about, you know, the fact that this is a project that we're doing and it's got it's got a bookends on it. It's a finite thing because I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm getting my own place when I move back to Canada. But this two and a half years that we've been living together and spending time with my sons and, you know, you know, and all of our all of the children in our family I have 300 cousins in Winnipeg. On my mom's side, oh, we're taking over the labor market for sure in the next decade. (laughs) Seventh generation, we we talk about that. How this is a project to stop this, stop it with us. You know, in our creation stories, we come from the stars, and we've been gifted this finite, eternal, you know, like like mortal experience here on Mother Earth to experience the full spectrum of the human emotional experience and uh, you know, and, and our children, you know, they don't need to experience this stuff. And so that's what kept me going. And, and you know, and I'm not saying I'm like 100% healed or any of that, you know, but what I can say is that I, you know, I came to Peru to go to the Chapo Chapibo people to get some healing healing that I wasn't able to get at the Sundance Lodge or in the sweat or even in my home when I smoked my pipe and I came here to ask for that help and uh you know to to protect me you know protect my sons and to protect the children you know especially the children not just in my family because this has to end with us it really does, you know. We can't let this stuff continue in that ball of hate and anger that's been living in my tummy. I did my best to get as much of that scraped out while I was here. I fasted for three weeks here with a sacred plant called Ohe. It's the biggest tree in the Amazon, and I was drinking the the sap from its from it, and talking to it. And the Ohe is a cleaner. And, you know, and I was also, you know, working with the sacred grandmother medicine, Ayahuasca, and praying to her and asking her to recreate new neural networks in my brain so that when I have a thought, it doesn't go through parts of my brain that have been totally damaged and destroyed by violence, you know, in my life. So that freaking switch of fight or flight doesn't keep getting clicked on and off and I'm all like, and so we'll see how things go. But I tell you, I'm very excited to move forward, and you know, and I have, I have a lot of forgiveness for the people in my life, you know, even the ones that raped me, you know, and I have forgiveness for them. That said, I don't ever want to fucking see these people. I don't want to hang out with them. No, you know, like, but I wish them the best. And I'm going to move forward and I know what my priorities are. It's my sons and and, and, and their mother, you know, and, um, and I'm going to take care of them. You know, and I'm going to take care of the little boy inside of me. I'm going to take care of the little boy inside of me. Whew.
0: Clayton, thank you. Um, I want to acknowledge that you know I'm asking you these questions because you've talked about them in your beautiful book. I also ask these questions not from an extractive place but from a shared place because I think that in our work, uh, in the work that um, that I do in the world, the inner and the outer are deeply connected, whether it's in my book, Deep Diversity, or in our organization. We move forward with that, and and uh, and I ask that because we need more people to amplify it. That vulnerability and healing is so important, and you've just done that so powerfully. I mean, my family history um, is one where civil war has displaced uh, our, my family at least twice, and once when I was a child. And so, growing up, uh, and you know, you can't live through civil war and not have trauma trauma in your family system. And so, that's been my my life has also been working through that and it's a continual process still today. I notice, I notice the elements within me in my quickness to rage and my quickness to anger that still shows up when I'm around my loving children and they're pissing me off, but it's disproportionate to the situation. And so I, 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 I share that because in you sharing your story, I don't want that to, even though you've talked about it in your book for that to feel like, you know, uh, I'm gazing in at you i am actually here with you even though your journey is very different than mine and our community is here because we talk about these issues i just want to put that out there as as a place where where sometimes sometimes our vulnerability can be used as a real sort of like oh wow I just grabbed another story and i can walk away but you know, I, I ask that because in our community, it's part of what's important to talk about. It's important in the work we do, whether it's someone like you who's on the front lines and creating the front lines in, in, um, in the justice work you do, whether it's us working inside organizations, which is a very different environment, whether it's people in their homes or in their communities that we've all got our different roles. And, uh, and, and yet our histories, our baggage shows up wherever those roles may be. And so I I just want to, I want to just acknowledge that, that, uh, that, you know, you share this as another place, as another point for me and our community to have these conversations about the importance of the healing work in doing justice work. So I wanna pause there for a moment and give you a break. I'm glad you got a smoke, if you wanna grab a glass of water, do whatever you like. I I wanna now just give Clayton five minutes to take a bio break. you've been brilliant in sharing such powerful um, stories and words with us. Uh, And what I wanna do is just uh, turn to the community for a minute and give you an opportunity to reflect. So just for a moment, I'd love for you to, uh, to think about and process without writing anything is, what's an idea that's just stayed with you so far? Clayton's going to be back in five minutes to answer questions and things like that. But I just want to give him a little bit of a a break to do what he needs to do. So uh, take a moment to reflect what stood out for you. What's caught your attention? What's an idea that's been really helpful in this in this process? And let us sink in. And when you're ready, write something into the chat, but don't hit return. We don't want to we don't want to get confused by other people's stuff right now. Just just write something into the chat. What's an idea that caught your attention? what stood out for you, what's been helpful, what's been illuminating, what's inspired you. Just write something in the chat, don't hit return yet. And if you're not in the mood to write, that's okay. Just take a moment to sit with yourself and let that experience, that that knowledge, that deep storytelling, just sit with that. See what resonates for you in your body. Take a couple of breaths on your own time. And whenever you're ready, Please hit return. And Amy, maybe can help me out as we're going through and seeing the ideas that come through.
2: Red washing,
3: the winter spirit has come up a couple times. Sickness of greed and consumption, capitalism as our new religion. Also, the power of community as inspiration, purpose, and support,
0: and that's reflected a few times.
3: Um, I'm going to take care of the little boy inside
0: me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And keep writing in. It's great. But I'm going to put another thing in is, what questions do you have for when Clayton gets back? Oh, he's back now. Maybe you got a question. Maybe you got a comment. So let's, first of all, reflect back a few things for Clayton. Clayton, I know you, you, you just took a, took a break, but there's been some really beautiful pieces that came up in terms of what people really um, took from your, from your conversation, um, really learned through that. And um, I'd also invite people to, um, you know, raise your hand now that we've had some time to process. Uh, if you have a comment you'd like to share with Clayton, please do. Uh, if you got a question or reflection, you're invited at this point. I just want to give you some processing time and give Clayton a little bit of time before we, we get ga- we gathered. Anyone like to share? We have uh, Gilbert. If you can unmute, Gilbert. Thank you, Clayton. Um, it's very brave that you put yourself out that way.
3: I really think that you're part of the new generation that's uh, open and uh, the new kind of men that we want to see in the world to do leadership, men that show vulnerability, men that show that they can cry for their loved ones. I think that's very strong, very manly, very human and humane, I had put a um, question much earlier than the requested time for questions. And that was, I was born in the South Bronx during a period of um, a lot of violence. I'm Puerto Rican and I grew in a community of black people and Latinos. I only knew um, three white people. (laughs) And um, my school was the same way. Uh, There were only two white people at my school. And I never knew what a white, I didn't understand what the word WASP was as a child, a white (laughs) Protestant. And I uh, only grew up, the whites were Catholic where I grew up. (laughs) I said, wow, there's so few Protestants. And and little did I know when I went to high school, it was an all white school and it was a culture shock for me. And so I really relate to um, reserve life because as popular during the 70s, I did live in a ghetto. I didn't get out. For me, going to another borough in New York City was going to another country. And it was scary because I didn't know what streets were safe. And um, so I grew up with a very little teeny emotional vocabulary. And a lot of guys that grew up in my neighborhood also had teeny emotional vocabularies and i noticed that when i went to high school the white kids had much more uh, bigger emotional vocabulary Uh, i didn't call it emotional vocabulary at the time i said oh they really know how to express feelings they know a lot of adjectives and so they were not prone to be violent to the teachers while the few of us that got into this specialized school high school were We would get, uh, we would start cursing as a warning sign, this could get violent. (laughs) And I started to increase my emotional vocabulary. And then I, as an adult, I went to a men's group. And one of the youngest men in the group said, I don't have an emotion. I didn't have emotional vocabulary. He pulled out a card and it had all these um, adjectives for feelings. And he says, I don't, it doesn't come to my brain. To say, are you trying to hurt me? Or, you know, do you realize what you say affects me in a very bad way? I had all these little things, a bad way, you know, it was a little bit of phrases. And I said, wow, this guy's this, this young man is a genius. And I started carrying a card around. So did the other men in the group that were older than me. Uh, and I was wondering, how do you, when you were dad? Did you find this thing about not being able to describe, find an adjective to say, oh, son, you know, you you just feel very anxious. Don't say nervous. You feel anxious because nervous is anything, but you're anxious. You, you know, you, you can't decide between one thing you anticipate and the other thing that you wish for.
0: Okay. I just want to check. So is this a question about Clayton and fatherhood? A- and, um, and emotional vocabulary okay thank you
1: Hmm. well you know the experience of uh, becoming a father and and, you know and and being a a very loving you know um, co-parenting circumstance with uh, my son's mother Corinne we we waited until we were in our late 20s you know Felix uh, my oldest boy was born when I was 28 and Jackson came two years after when I was 30. And, uh, you know, at that point, I was, I was very, very, very much heavily involved in the movement and was already, you know, lecturing some of the best education institutions on the planet and speaking at all the big conferences and all of that sort of thing. And so when it came to, you know, terminology around critical race theory and around, like, you know, like decolonization practice and you know, and also ceremonial, like language, like our cosmovision as indigenous peoples, those are all things that were very much deep, you know, were already very much a part of my life in the way that I saw the world and the way that I communicate. And so, you know, what I would say is that when it comes to when it comes to my sons, they have had a dramatically different life than I've had, like their childhood, and their mother is like, it's just, like, one of the most incredible human beings, if not the most incredible human being I ever met. I mean, that's why I fell in love with her and uh, wanted to have babies with her. And, uh, you know, so she's, the ed, like, you know, the education that she gives them and that I've given them, like, I don't know, y- y'all y- y'all got to watch out for Felix and Jackson. They're, they're some pretty freaky kids, uh, you know, and they, they have a very, very in-depth, they have a very high aptitude for socialization and, and and they're very confident and uh you know they speak like like three languages um you know like they're you know they're they're very hyper intelligent hyper aware hyper connected children teenagers now you know and and while you know I've certainly set bad examples you know in their life you know with some of my my behavior, my destructive patterns, you know, it's not like they grew up, you know, they weren't spanked, you know, and, and, and most of my like, my, my drinking and alcoholism and that sort of thing and drug abuse over the years, you know, is in hotels, when I'm like, you know, by myself. And then just kind of like, you know, at home, like, that's, that's the one thing that Corinne was always very, very adamant about was that our son's lives must not be interrupted by your healing process, Clayton. You know, you gotta like show up for the boys, and you really they need they need stability. And when she asked me to move out, it was because I wasn't able to. You know, it was like right before the, it was like those final steps before the book was done and to be given to the publisher. I just couldn't keep my shit together at home, and so we both agreed that the boys should only see me at my best. And I moved, in, you know, I moved out. I moved in with my mom, and uh, you know, and I get them two three nights a week you know, sometimes more. But, you know, when I have them, um, I'm at my best. And I talk to them the way that my mother talked to me. I talk about that in the book a lot. She was very honest with me. I don't do it quite like her, like she was brutal. Like, she like, no filter. It was like Howard Stern show on residential school and all the fucking horrors, (laughs) you know. Like she didn't edit anything for me, but for my sons, you know, I, I speak to them at a, you know, about difficult themes that they will have to deal with, that our family deals with about classism, about, you know, sexism or homophobia, you know, all of these things. And so, you know, my, my sons are, 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 are little activists already and they organize like in their schools, you know, on a variety of issues. You know, I have my youngest son is non-gender conforming, you know, and he's very, that's, that's a big part of his activism. He's got a little crew of kids that are like that and they're advocating, you know, you know, I think in response to just toxic masculinity and that 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 overarching shadow of patriarchy that is polluting and you know and, and, and creating such imbalance, you know, everywhere in society, including in their schools. And so, you know, and, and when they were little kids, I don't know how many times they got up on the hill in Ottawa with me, you know, tens thousands of people like, you know, on the lawn protesting my little kid just come right up on the steps of parliament with me, get on the mic, what up? So to them, it's natural, you know? And they, I mean, I don't know how many times, you know, the French, you know, wants a French interview. And I'm like, I don't know, I can't speak French, but my, you know, I'm like, Felix, come and talk to this reporter. (laughs) And my son, Felix will come up, blah, 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 on Francais. You know, so the one thing I will say with my boys is that I'm very, very committed and cautious about never imposing my worldview, my political views, my spiritual views on them. and the, you know and I, I consistently just try to encourage them to make their own choices. and instead of like saying that's the wrong choice, what I try to do, what my mother taught me is I, I give them potential scenarios that might come from the decision that they make or they choose. You know the the ramifications but leave it to them to make the choice and uh you know i just try to do that with them so that they i think that the biggest like a lot of people don't realize this but the you know empowerment and self-determination comes through agency you know the belief that it came from inside and you know it's that whole thing about lead a horse to water you know like can't make them drink it but he, anyway hope that answers your question
0: thanks for the question gilbert about you know uh, about really it's another variation of how toxic masculinity has been has been passed down and socialized and uh, you know i think going back to this idea that 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 clayton you talked about which is like it's another element of continuing to learn to break the cycle and learning to articulate in a different way using words and not fists is another, is, is, is really important way and, and uh, I really appreciate it. Appreciate the question. Any other question or comment we'd like to make one in our last few minutes before uh, we go? Jillian.
2: Hi, Clayton. Hi, everybody. Um, Clayton, thank you so much for sharing and thank you for, well, you've been through a lot and putting your story together. I, what really resonated for me was you're doing the work to clean it out so you can move forward and the importance of being able to take time in your life to do that and many of us are too scared to take that time or don't have that time They i can't take that break we can't unpack that baggage so we can move forward without it and it's really important to do and just what you said about when you became a father all this stuff bubbled up because parenting changes things I had to go through a process of unpacking mm-hmm. my relationship with my mother after I had my son. I had postpartum depression because of it. And I had to go through my own journey. I don't even know if I'm fully over there and done all that unpacking. I know I haven't, but that really resonated with me. And, you know, you go through these changes in life and different things bubble up. So thank you for sharing that. It was really uh, a lot to me to hear that from somebody else.
0: Thanks so much, Julian. Any other comments or questions?
3: A lot of gratitude expressed in the chat for Clayton.
0: And uh, Clayton, while you were, while you just had a little break, I don't know if you were able to hear, but there was lots of things that came up here uh, in terms of the ideas people picked up. The winter spirit idea really caught a lot of people's attention and the idea of red washing and the power of community and inspiration that those are just some of the things that were, that were, uh, that were really being amplified and being reflected back to you. So I don't see any other hands right now. Is there anything you'd like to clo- close with? Any final thoughts for you? Well, mostly just, you know, I want to express gratitude for everybody for being here today.
1: and Gratitude to Shaquille and his partner and their beautiful children and, you know, and all the staff, you know, for pulling everything together today. I really, really need all of your help, you know, to to. To blow this like murdered and missing indigenous women and girls and these thousands and thousands of children who are finally getting a chance to go home now from 150 years of Indian residential school you know I really need your help to to make the connection between you know these atrocities and the ongoing systemic manifestations of that spirit of what's driving these things you know, at residential school, everybody thinks it's over, but, you know, there are more kids living under government care in non Native families, foster families, households, and st- sleeping in hotels with non Native social workers watching them right now than there ever were in 150 years of residential school. They're abducting our children like on a daily basis across these lands they call Canada. We need help to stop that. There are lawsuits like the good work of Cindy Blackstock, you know, to hold the government to account for politicizing these issues. Um, You know, it's important to, like, do your best, to talk to your peers, work, to talk to your family about this stuff. I mean, don't waste time on that one uncle who's got the Make America Great Again hat. Like, fuck those guys. Like, just let them do what they're going to do. But for people who's, you know you feel like where your tummy tells you that they might be open to like, you know, being activated and to take action, you know, talk to them, you know, support them, compel them to, to, to take responsibility, you know, and I really want you to help as well with the work that, you know, are, that we're supporting through the 350.org organization, you know, the Wet'suwet'en people, you know, the Deslewet'u, the, the Squepmonk, you know, with these fights in BC you know, the criminalization of indigenous people, you know, the fact that they just did a fourth raid of the Wet'suwet'en, you know, land camps, you know, these are people who have no treaties, that they have title over their land and they, they freaking raided their camps, their hunting and fishing camps with like militarized choppers, with like police dogs. They, they pointed semi-automatic machine guns and sick police dogs and unarmed native women and children just last month. And there hasn't been like, and now there's all these white supremacists driving rigs to Ottawa, and they raised $4 million in 48 hours for a white supremacist nationalist group, most of it foreign money, you know, thank God PayPal put a freeze on their account. But you know, like, Canada's got its priorities, like, super messed up. But I don't think it's the majority that are doing like things like what these 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 redneck white supremacists kkk truckers are doing yeah i think they're very, they're a very small group and i think there are more of us that care about the future and that care about democracy and that care about human rights and that care about the sacredness of our of our environment and that depend on it you know for for the future so yeah you know when we put the calls out you know for you to come and hit the streets and put your bodies on the line answer the call You know, come and join the movement. You know, we need every single person to stand together to, you know, to change things. You know, and like I said, you know, Canada's 80% white presenting, 80% European descended presenting, 11% immigrant, you know, immigrants and migrants, undocumented and undocumented, you know, brown people essentially, and like 6% black. And then five, four or five percent First Nations Inuit and Métis, and you know we need your we need your help, you know, to 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 tear down these systems of oppression. And until it becomes your issue, we're gonna keep getting like impacted by this shit disproportionately. And you know these young people, I keep saying this, they're not gonna like take shit like my generation did. You know they're going to put they're going to throw wrenches into the system. And if you think that some of these shutdown Canada actions were big before, Idle No More was big before, Standing Rock was big before. Just you wait, what's coming in the next year or two. And on that note, you know, hug your families, love them, and uh, you know we'll see you
0: out on the streets and out on the land. Thank you, thank you, thank you everyone for coming. And Clayton uh, again, uh, life in city of dirty water. A memoir of healing, uh, folks. It's Candor uh, Reed's finalist book, and uh, uh, both supporting the work and the links that uh, that uh, Clayton has referenced, and also supporting his book and and the work. Clayton, thank you very much, uh, my friend, for uh, for tuning in all the way from Peru. Super appreciate your time, and really look forward to uh, to next time. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Okay, everybody, the way we always do, we ended here by just uh, uh, going off mute and just uh, saying goodbye so we can hear the community voices as we close. So unmute and say goodbye, everyone.
3: Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Happy New Year.
0: <laughs> it's too late for Happy New Year. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today.
2: Our next episode will be available soon.